This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations of people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined by Moera Karatai. Kia ora, Moera. Hello, Sam. How's it going? It's going very well indeed. How is life in Fakatani? Did you manage to stay dry over the last few days? Um, we, we got quite wet, uh, but not like they have in Northland. They just got absolutely smashed. That was a phenomenal number of lightning strikes they had in a short time. Yeah, feeling sorry for those guys up there. And we had a holiday, but you didn't. No, you did. And you went for a big epic walk by the look of it. It was very nice. Although it was cloudy at the top. And it's supposed, coastal Otago is supposed to be on the edge of a, bordering on the edge of a drought, but nobody told the top of Mihiwaka that. It's quite, it's quite boggy up there. And who are we introducing today? It is my great pleasure to introduce Rob Hamlin. Rob is a senior lecturer of marketing at Otago University. He specialises in food marketing, and I found out about him after reading his article in The Conversation, which is you'll find on the RNZ website, turning supermarkets into public utilities could solve New Zealand's grocery problem. And I tell you what, Rob, you're preaching to the choir when I read that. <laughs> it was absolutely awesome. Thank you for joining us today. We appreciate oh, having uh, you here. Thank you very much for having me on. Cure, Rob. Where are you, Rob? I'm at home, uh, which is over the hill in Montague. Um I've got a, uh, a small block of land over here uh, on which we grow most of the food that we eat. Uh, it's quite nice, really. We did the lockdown fairly easy. We were, uh, we were lucky, yeah, to put it that way, basically. So we, we came through that in fairly good shape. We don't know whether we've had COVID or not. We might have done. We might not have done. It's, uh, um, I think most people don't know, to be frank with you. <laughs> But, um, um, yeah, all's, all's really pretty good over here. Uh, yeah, been a nice day today. It's been good. And I realise that we're on radio, but what's the boat behind you? That boat is the Dunedin. Uh, it's um, the ship that really changed the world of food marketing. It, it sailed from Dunedin in the 1880s with the world's first commercial cargo of refrigerated meat, which, yeah, back in those days, it was the first time they'd done it, so... Um, uh, the fridge was powered by a steam engine that sat on the deck and they didn't know how cold they had to get it so they erred on the side of caution and for most of the voyage the temperature in the hold was well over 100 below zero centigrade so quite dangerous to go in there and they worked the engine so hard it kept on setting the sails on fire so it must have been quite an exciting trip I would think. (laughs) 
But they got there, and the meat was in good nick, and it all got sold at Smithfield Meat Market, and um, that was really solved a lot of New Zealand's problems, because one of the problems that this country had was that we could produce wool, um, but and we could produce dairy and turn it into cheese and ship that, but both of those industries produced large amounts of meat as a byproduct, and it was actually getting that meat to somewhere where it was valuable that really allowed this country to establish itself as a as a viable uh, agricultural commodity exporter. And that's why the Dunedin's important. She was lost at sea with all hands, unfortunately, in 1893. She sailed off into the sunset from Dunedin and was never seen again. So along with her sister ship, they lost the, uh, they lost two of them within a month. The Marlborough and the Dunedin both disappeared within a month of one another. Was that um, not not the sinking of it, but the the first shipment? I, I realise that it wasn't an instantaneous thing; that it was developments leading up to that, and you know, it took a while to get there. But can you pinpoint similar kind of events through the history of the d- development of our? I was going to say society, but let's go. Yeah, let's go for society. But the development of our our systems. Yeah, well. Uh- I mean, an awful lot of the early settlement of New Zealand, it was all, especially in the South Island, uh, the two islands have a very different history. The, uh, the North Island was settled in rather a disorderly manner, and uh, that's to put it mildly, uh, from certain people who were on the receiving end of that settlement, it was highly disorderly and pretty unpleasant. The South Island was much more orderly, and it was settled by companies, and they brought in uh, the right side of chaps. And uh, once again, uh, the Dunedin was quite significant in this because she was built as an immigrant ship. She wasn't built as a refrigeration ship to begin with. Um, and these immigrants were shipped in by you know, commercial companies that were set up for the purpose. And Christchurch and Dunedin and most of the big cities on the South Island were actually deliberately surveyed and established and settled as a commercial venture. And they, they sort of brought what they thought would be the right balance of people in uh, and tried to set the thing up so that it worked well. Things went horribly wrong pretty quickly. And the land ended up in the hands of a few very, very large pastoral runs. Um, and there's the remains of a couple of these around the place. The, the homestead and outbuildings just south of Omaru, for example, a good example of the relic of this era. And then as they started to try and sort the country out, they tried to break these big estates up and try and bring more people in so that the country could support more people. Um, because obviously these big run stations were very nice for the people that owned them, but they didn't really earn much of a living for anybody else. And the government were very interested in establishing high-value agriculture uh, in order to run an export market. And by the 1880s, by dint of a good deal of what you might call economic gardening uh, and regulation, and sometimes forced breakup of these big estates, they were starting to work towards that. And these first shipments of refrigerated meat were an important part of the idea of building the egalitarian and, to, uh, and rural society that the founding people in this part of the world thought was what they were aiming for. So quite an important um, building block of that process. Rob, I usually start these, but I forgot at the start of this one, to ask people how their bubble life was and of pointing out that bubble life has turned into a traffic light and whatever else it is. But how was your bubble life? Well, my bubble life's been pretty good throughout, actually. Uh, um, as I say, we've, we have a fairly nice product a fairly nice property to run around on it and um, we've all got plenty to do and work really transferred online relatively smoothly uh, so I was able to work from home during the worst 
parts of the bubble, and we just burnt a lot less fuel, which was quite nice in that regard. Uh, um, uh, you didn't have to work around North Dunedin trying to find somewhere to leave the car. So it was, <laughs> it was, it was all fairly positive. Uh, I think it'd be nice to obviously you know, not be bubbling because it's always nicer to talk to the students face-to-face than on a screen. Um, and I'm just hoping that this this pimple will will pass through and um, then we'll be back to normal. Um, so we're hoping, but I don't know what the final word on when, when live teaching is going to happen again at the university, but it'd be nice if it was soon. And you've carried on doing research? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, you know, the research never stops, basically. <laughs> uh, I am, once again, very lucky that uh, I'm not a nuclear physicist, so I don't need a sort of, you know, throgmatron which weighs 50 tonnes in order to do my research. And the uh, the internet has really proved, yeah, pretty resilient to that kind of thing. It's amazing, really, that when I first arrived at university, you still had to go to the university library and then you'd find your journal and then you'd find the interesting article you were looking for and find out somebody had cut it out with a razor blade. Well, you know, those joys are in the past now, so you just... Um, um obviously if you're a member of the university the university pays several million dollars a year for library access to all of these journals and it's quite impressive that if it's published in a journal somewhere in the world then you'll be able to get a pdf of it literally within a few seconds so uh, yeah research has pretty much gone on as research normally does which has been quite nice i'm going to take the first of your music choices and then we'll come back and talk about food brothers in arms why this one I remember this one. It, it, I think you always remember the music that came out when you were at university and of that age when yeah, music was obviously a very large part of the social scene. I remember this coming out because it was really completely different to anything else which um, had come out that year particularly. And it's obviously when you look at what's going on in the world today, it's, it, it's a very topical commentary, uh, but it's not. Entirely negative. Um, it's it's an interesting piece of music in that regard, and I think it's probably Dar Straits' best piece of music. I um, I would imagine some people disagree, but it's my favourite. Your valleys and your farms 
I think I was the only teenager in the South Island not to go to Dire Straits in Christchurch in 1986. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, apparently there was another one. You weren't allowed to go either? Rob, what's happening with the price of food? The price of food, it's essentially we seem to be paying a lot more for it in New Zealand than we should do. But I should point out that I don't think it's the only thing in this country that we're paying rather more than we should do. Um, there are quite a number of items where if you go abroad, they're a lot cheaper. And there seems to be no good reason why that should be so. Um, it can get extreme. So certainly last week I tried to buy a pack of 10 little screws, which had a rather non-standard thread on, uh, what's known as a British standard fine thread. Now, although they've been discontinued for a number of years, you can still buy those for £5 for 10 in the UK. But I was asked over $600 for 10 of them in this country. And I, I, that's what's known as value pricing. Somebody clearly realised that if I wanted this item, I had a piece of machinery with an obsolete thread in a hardened piece of metal, and I had no choice but to buy these screws. And therefore, their pitch, their opportunism, was to say, well, presumably this machine's worth more than 600 bucks. Let's see if it is. And it was, but I bought five quid out of the United Kingdom. But I think it's important to realise that food is not the only commodity in this country that we seem to be paying too much for. Uh, it's the one that's got people's attention at the moment. Um, but um, this country's got a serious problem with um, distribution and marketing and retail systems, in my opinion. How did that come about? I think because it's a small country, um, which does increase the cost of distribution, but not by as much as people claim. Um, back in the days, I think, when this country tried to produce more of its own stuff, the manufacturing scale was more of a factor and people kind of got used to paying a lot for their stuff. So this country, for example, produced washing machines in relatively small quantities. And therefore, you could claim that it was probably more expensive to produce washing machines by the hundreds rather than by the tens of thousands. But people just got into the habit of paying more for their stuff than other people overseas. And there's no reason for that now, because most of the stuff is manufactured overseas. I think there's also a tendency for people in this country to be rather more easygoing about being charged a lot for stuff than they are overseas. So you get the prices, perhaps not that you deserve, but you get the prices that you put up with. And so, for example, I had a tradesman quote last week and i worked out what this person's hourly rate was and it amounted to six hundred thousand dollars a year um i couldn't quite believe that but i had another friend who worked in the insurance industry said that was about right and um that's the kind of thing where i think if you have a tradesman going up to somebody's door in the united states and trying to charge them six hundred thousand dollars a year um they'd be likely to be disappearing out the front door of that property with their backside on fire but people get away with it here and therefore they do uh, human nature being what it is. Um, but I think that really uh, the population in this country might do itself a favour by being generally a lot more towy about what is and what is not an acceptable price. What can we do about that as individuals or does it need a system change? Uh, uh, individual action helps when you have a choice. Uh, um, 
obviously with food, you generally don't have a choice uh, and therefore your individual sovereignty is, is, is uh, to a certain degree limited. I mean, you do have choice with food in certain areas where the supermarkets have competition uh, and you should look to exercise those choices, even if it means that it's a little bit inconvenient for you, A, to find out that it is available less for somewhere else, and B, to then go and patronise that person, which obviously rewards them and encourages them for going out of their way to offer this product to you for less money than you might have otherwise paid for, or or at a higher quality, or both. Rob, I've done a lot of thinking about choice uh, over time, and I've definitely in the, in the group that sees choice absolutely as a myth that so much of what we think is our choice is, is actually not a choice at all. Uh, everything that we think we're choosing is, is predictable. Well, that's very true. And, I mean, uh, uh, one of the best examples of this, of, of what you might call managed choice, um, choice where you think you have, uh, where you have competition would be the average category within a supermarket. That if you think about the supermarket situation, most of the commentary is about competition between the two major supermarkets. There's much less said about competition within them. So if you go to the average, what's known as a full service supermarket, you'll find, for example, if you go to the baked beans category, that there are, there seem to be lots of competing um, brands of baked beans available. Um, that's not entirely as it seems, because the competitive arena is entirely and ruthlessly under the control of the retailer. Now, the retailer's objective is to extract the maximum amount of money from you for your purchase within that category. So in the food industry, the strategic unit is the category. And the best way to think of a category is it's like an entry on somebody's mental shopping list. So somebody goes into the supermarket with beans, eggs, milk, cheese, um, cornflakes. All of those are categories. Now, the thing is that a punter, well, a punter goes into a supermarket and they're going to buy what's on that category. And they're probably not going to very often buy stuff that's not on that category. So from the food industry's point of view, the only way that they can increase their revenue is to get you to pay as much for what you're going to buy in that category as they possibly can. Because food's an unusual thing in that people will only buy and eat so much of it. It's not like speedboats or records or CDs, um, people will only eat a certain amount of food in a set period. So if you want to make more money, you've got to go pay more for it. So the way that a supermarket category works is let's say that the entry on this person's list is beans. Well, the supermarket says, well, we need to persuade them to pay a bit more happily for a tin of beans than they otherwise would do. And they set up what looks like a really exciting competitive market, which might have seven or eight brands in it. So you might have Oak and you've got What Is and you've got Value and you've got Heinz and you may have a couple of other brands in there. Now, the way that the supermarket works is that they divide those brands into two groups. There's what they call the independent brands, which are owned by independent companies, and they've got the house brand. And the house brands and the independent brands have distinct strategic purposes. The independent brands innovate and keep that category interesting. That might seem kind of hard work to make the baked beans category interesting, and it is. Uh, and that's why Heinz and, and all of these other companies have enormous innovation departments trying to make you interested in baked beans, which is a power that the supermarkets can't match. 
So when it comes to foodstuffs and um, Woolworths, they look big, but they're not as big as some of the big food manufacturing countries around the world. And as a result, they can't innovate at the same rate. So they subcontract that innovation capacity to the independent manufacturers and they allow them to survive and to sell product and to sell product within that category. So you'll pay more for Watties and Heinz than you will for a house brand. The house brands belong to the supermarket and all they do is they follow along and they mop up the profit. So if you're not that bothered about being excited about baked beans, and a lot of us are not, um, we will tend to go for what we perceive to be the best value. And PAMS, which stands for Phil and Max, by the way, that's what PAMS stands for, um, is a house brand which is positioned, that means it's presented to the consumer on value. Now, something like value, basically a very simple message, it says, well, this is crap and it's cheap. And that does two things. One is it offers an option for people where that is, for whatever reason, the primary driver for purchase. But it also sets a base price on the category. Most people don't know what food really costs. And so they kind of, as they're facing the category, make a heuristic choice. And they may have seven or eight brands which look like they're competing with one another, but they're all basically performing and positioned according to a plan for that category, which is entirely and ruthlessly ruled by the retailer. The upshot of all that long conversation I've just given you is that on average, a punter may pay 20 to 30 cents more for a can of beans than the other do. The trick is that the supermarket only pays an extra 15 to 20 cents per can to run that show. And the 5 to 10 cents difference is the extra profit they make by running it. So you think you've got a choice, and I suppose in a certain way you do, um, but you wouldn't want to think that those that it was a choice between sovereign entities because it isn't. It's a show. So that's great for the supermarkets. It, it does create a weakness for them. And that is that there's been a lot of comment about the discounters that operate around the world. And there's three of them. They're, they're all German-owned. They're all privately held. Um, and they have come into markets around the world. And they've taken quite a significant but never a dominant share, except in Germany. Uh, and the way a discounter works is that they have small stores. They don't compete with the main supermarkets. They prey on them. They're not a solution to this country's problem. A discounter will have a small store. It might be a fifth the sixth of the size of a full-size new. And the way that their business model operates is they say, you want beans? we got beans. They're over there. We've only got one. There's no choice. And they don't muck around. But what you'll find is that because they don't incur the extra costs of running this competition show, which isn't that a mainline supermarket runs, their product is fundamentally cheaper to put on the shelf and therefore fundamentally better value per cent than what the big boxes put on the shelf themselves. And that's their business model. And it's absolutely deadly um, because the punters rapidly learn that it's better value. Not all of them, but a significant percentage. And what the discounters like to do is they like to park themselves next to a big box and prey on them. Not compete with them, but prey on them. Because you see, the discount model has a weakness, and it's this. Although it looks like a whole load of independent manufacturer brands in something like Lidl or Aldi, that's all what's technically known as bullshit, because all of the designs are fakes. It's all made for Lidl. Those organisations don't really exist as independent entities. And they look like brands, but as a brand's in purpose is to compete with other equivalent 
And there are no other equivalent products in an Aldi. It's just a picture. It costs no more than the ink to paint it on the can. Now, that's great. But the problem is that because Aldi only have own brands, they can't innovate. So they need the big boxes to pay the independent brands and house the independent brands and fund their research and enterprise in order to maintain innovation within the food sector. And that means that they go into the big boxes and they find out what's doing well. And if it's going really well, they'll produce their own version of it. But it's almost like a sort of ecosystem. And like any ecosystem, a parasite's not in the game to kill its host. Uh, the discounters don't want to destroy the supermarkets. They just want to feed on a bit. Now, that means that their relationship with the big boxes in this country would be very similar. And there is evidence that although they discount, they don't discount to what they could put as a minimum price. They'll discount to the degree that makes their business model work in that market. So they have no interest. They would have no business interest in significantly forcing the mainline retailers to drop their price because that would reduce their profit. And uh, certainly I've seen indications that where the discounters have gone into countries like Australia, where the food price has been high, the cost that it takes to repay the investment to enter the market have been significantly less in those countries than where the food's cheaper. So that suggests to you that they're basically saying, yeah, well, that dropped the price a wee bit, but we're not going to rock the boat. And that, of course, applies to any competitor that comes into this country. They are not, if they are remotely canny, going to disrupt a market which is used to paying over the odds for the goods. It makes no sense to them, and it makes no sense to anybody. So the idea that new entrants will reduce prices, there's no reason or evidence why that should be the case. Um, and I mean, I happen to have had the displeasure to being a supplier to the supermarkets in the UK. And I can assure you that they run just as effective a cartel with four or five of them as it was just with two. Um, so that's why actually the Commerce Commission has been perfectly correct to say that new entrants are probably not going to make any different prices. But they didn't have anything system change to suggest other than building more supermarkets or making it easier to build well, more supermarkets. I mean, but you seem to be suggesting that it's a. It's more fundamental than just more supermarkets. Yeah, I mean, um, you may find that more supermarkets are, are the one thing that's guaranteed to make no difference at all is by forcing the supermarkets that already have sites to divest those sites and give them to somebody else. Because fundamentally, that doesn't increase the retail capacity in this country and therefore puts no pressure, downward pressure on price. Now, you might say that you could facilitate a new entrant coming in. But one of the problems there is that they're going to say, well, what would we have to do to really compete effectively in this country? And they might have to put in quite a lot of extra capacity. And food is a very elastic thing when it comes to price. So basically, a little bit too much food, and people aren't interested in it, and they won't pay you for it. A little bit too little food, and people are prepared to stab each other through the eye for a mouldy potato. Very, very flexible. So if you were an external competitor, you'd be, you'd be looking at the New Zealand market. You might say, well, where would we to come in? In order to run the infrastructure to supply the supermarkets, we'd need to operate on a scale that might be an extra 30% of retail floor space in the supermarket sector. You've then got to say, well, what would happen if we had 30% more supermarket space and product and infrastructure chasing an unchanging amount of consumer dollars being spent on food. Because food has this 
What makes food fundamentally different in a competitive thing is this concept of what they call satiety, that people will only eat 3,000, just a little bit more calories a day. They won't eat very much more. Uh, so you see that really fat guy. He's not actually eating very much more than a skinny guy next door to it. But over the years, it builds up. But what that means is that you can't persuade people to buy more food. So if you put more capacity into the system, the chances are that you could drop the price. Yep which is obviously what the Commerce Commission want. But then they'd be making your money and you'd lose your shirt because you built this massively expensive infrastructure of 30% of the supermarkets coming in uh, and you would be operating on no margin at all. Now, the chances are uh, that given you'd be the person coming in and borrowing money to build new supermarkets all around, that your cost structure would be higher. So if it got really tight on the margins, then the chances are that you might be going out feet first because you can't actually generate the cash to keep your operations going. And that could be a smashing capital loss. So this is one of the reasons why, although the food looks really expensive, well, I mean, why isn't somebody coming in? The, the chances are that if you look at the calculations, it's really quite risky and a big player. The other thing is that overseas supermarkets don't seem to transplant well. Um, there's been a history of supermarkets entering other people's markets. And even without this additional complication, very few of them have had a happy ending. And you could name any number of them where it looked like a dead cert and it didn't work out. One exception to that has been the discounters, but they operate this fundamentally different model. A big box, though risky, 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 and expensive if it all goes horribly wrong. And that's probably what's keeping them out of the new market. And also you have all of the additional problems that the supermarkets have brought up all the sites for governance on them, which makes it more expensive and more long-winded and more risky and therefore makes it less attractive for anybody to come in. Let's squeeze in the second of the tracks you've sent us. Pink Floyd, On the Turning Away. Why this one? Um, I just really like the guitar solo at the end of it. Uh, 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 I mean, I'm no music aficionado and I don't know whether it's a hard guitar solo to play or not, but it's just a particularly satisfying one uh, and quite cool. On the turning away From the pale and downtrodden And the words they say which we won't understand Don't accept that what's happening Is just a case of all the suffering Oh, you'll find that you're joining in the turning away It's a sin that somehow Light is changing to shadow And casting its shroud over Find the strength. 
of the forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā pi aroha nui, kia koutou, ko I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars and your beloved universes. And I really hope, wherever you are and whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustained and illuminating for you more and each day. Who you are, the triumph of nature's art, unique and heat-making. Thank you. So, of course, we find ourselves having moved through the time of equinox. And here we are, looking forward to the future. So much awaits us. We're beginning a new cycle. It's a very exciting, very creative time. And part, of course, of looking forward, savouring the opportunities that are coming our way is of course to look back and feel grateful and gain deeper understanding of all of the things that have passed before. And of course, as we know, for the last more than two years, we had to navigate ever-shifting seismic landscape of a global pandemic. 
and it has had its ups and downs as we know and of course for all of us different aspects have had to come forward and interact with one another on a daily basis and this has been fascinating as much as it has been gruelling and stressful and painful and, and hard. It's also been inspiring and life affirming. So I really hope now as we begin this new cycle, as we think about what creative energy we want to share with the world, what projects we want to begin, what new thing we want to bring into being in order to express our love and our gratitude to the world, in order to celebrate the life force that courses through our beautiful bodies in order to say thank you, in order to awaken and inspire in others what has been awoken and inspired within us or something completely different. Wherever we're heading forward, I really hope you can enjoy looking back and seeing the moments where you have come forward to help others, where you have been kind and passionate and made a real difference and feel grateful for the love and have received. I'm so excited for us in time. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Kakite. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Rob Hamlin. Rob, normally at this point in the show, I one of the things I, that we ask people is what we can learn from the pandemic and the pandemic response for the bigger sorts of problems we face. And I normally give the examples of climate change and social justice, but I'll modify it a bit and say, what can we learn from the pandemic to solve these problems of the food industry? Well, I think that one of the things that the pandemic has shown is that we've become rather over-specialised and we've got far too much stuff moving around the world. And the unfortunate thing from this country's point of view is that we rely on exporting a lot of stuff. But, and I think this is where we go back to the situation pre-1985, in many ways, the neoliberal era has made our exposure to export and import disruption even more critical than it used to be. And if we look at the thinking of, everybody thinks of Robert Muldoon, but Robert Muldoon was the last of a very long line of philosophy about this country, where they said, yeah, food export's really good, but we need to, if at all possible, reduce our reliance on the absolute need to export primary commodities in order to get what we need. So a neoliberal will say, well, actually, you should export raw commodities and then you should buy all your manufacturers in. Well, the problem with that is that creates all sorts of horrible dependencies, um, one of which is the price of export commodities. Um, the other is the relative price of the manufacturers or anything else that's coming in. And I think this country needs to re-examine how it is in fact developing as a nation because I've now lived here for 30 years and I've seen this country going backwards in terms of the value added of its exports and that's a serious matter so I think that if I was going to look at the pandemic and and if people want to see a lesson go down to the docks in Dunedin and have a look at that mountain of radiata logs and say why is this all one species of tree? Why is it the crappiest tree that we can grow? Why are all of these logs going out in this in this recessed form? Um, why is it that um, we are unable to, even at the most basic level, add value to this product when we know that actually there ain't enough wood in the world? There is not. An awful lot of countries, 
most of them, most of the major timber exporting countries have export tariffs on raw timber, and with good reason. And those export tariffs are not small. Um, they are not small. And yeah, when I see things like swamp cow, an irreplaceable, high value, um, things you could do with swamp cow where you could make employment and money and revenue for the nation, and it's going out as what they call flitches. Uh, which is basically four-inch slabs sawn off and going out God knows where. It loses the connection. It loses the story. It loses the value. Uh, and um, I'm seeing that story again and again and again, that we need to look at being less trade-dependent than we are. Um, and that might mean that life is a little, for some people, a little harder. I mean, to be frank with you, I don't actually think the average person would be disadvantaged at all by having more value added going on to country. We don't have enough good jobs to keep our young people here. Um, I don't think there's much chance that my son will stay in this country simply because of the lack of opportunity. Um, and that applies across the board. And it's most unfortunate. And I think that the pandemic um, just showed us gave us a first public warning, but not much more of just how vulnerable we are. Rob, I have some questions to end the show with. Yep. And not very much time, so we're going to have to wriggle. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? <laughs> the biggest success I've had? Well, it's been, uh, uh, I suppose that um, I like tinkering in the workshop. And, uh, and it's a harmless really that's, entirely personal to me. And I found a wreck of an Ernst Planck. There's a very early German steam toy down in one of the auctions and I paid about 15 bucks for it. And I restored that back to absolutely as it was when it came out of the box because it was almost certainly a Christmas present, probably bought for a child in between 1865 and 1867. And it was quite a spiritual thing, really, because you saw it sitting in its box and you thought, well, you can't resurrect the child or the parent, but at least the little steam engines knew again. That was a nice feeling, you know. That's cool. So, that was cool. Yeah, there was. It, it was. it was a surprisingly spiritual event when you actually looked at it sitting in the box and there it was all over again, back at it was back in the day, you know. So we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. You're in that team. What's your superpower? My superpower? Ooh, uh, I have so many. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, think, uh, I think the superpower is not to hold grudges that much. I'm too absent-minded. Oblivion is sometimes good. <laughs> <laughs> so do you consider yourself to be an activist? Yes, uh, um, and uh, I've been an activist in this city for a long time, and I've taken a few lumps for it. Um, but generally, the causes where I've been an activist in have been worthy, and I've been proved to be right. Uh, it's unfortunate, generally, you're proved to be right as an outcome of events you've tried to stop, but um, uh, it has a sort of kind of perverse satisfaction in it. <laughs> So what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? I just like doing things that are right. Uh, um, and, 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 I mean, not necessarily convenient. Um, and so, you know, getting out and, and using your mind to, to, to maybe articulate things, because, I mean, one of the things that I'm very fortunate, I've been a very fortunate recipient of a superlative education. 
And um, that has stood me in good stead to be able to process information stuff and research stuff and be able to formulate and put things in in an order that maybe a lot of other people for, for, are through no fault of their own. And one of the things about being an academic is you have a lot of time. Uh, and that's a major asset as an academic, that you've got the time to look at a problem and articulate what the nature of that problem is and what the possible solutions to it are. Even if it doesn't seem like we've got lots of time at the time. Yeah, um, but uh, I, I, compared to... <laughs> I occasionally have executives come in as guests, and I think I'm time short. And then I see that they've got a laptop in front of them and a cell phone stuck to each ear, and I don't know how they hold a steady uh, thought in their head for more than 30 seconds. So, yeah, you think you're under pressure in terms of, of inputs and that kind of thing. But being an academic, you have the luxury that you can actually clear areas of time and say, right, okay, this afternoon I'm going to do that. And, you know, people obviously complain about the academic life and that there are things you should complain about. But, hey, there's worse ways to earn a living than being an academic. Uh, and one of the great luxuries is this capacity that you can say you've got access to the information, you should have a reasonable mind, it should be reasonably well-trained, and you've got the capacity and the colleagues and all of the resources to do a good job of putting bookends on a problem and making it understandable to other people who may not have the resources that you do. So what is the biggest challenge or opportunity that you're looking forward to in the next year well, or so? Um, well, I've got to finish the model of the Dunedin that's sitting behind me, um, which is going to take quite a long time. Um, I would say that the biggest challenge that I'm facing at the moment will be looking at the health labels on food and um, attempting to make sense of what works and what doesn't, because a lot of the programs that we're using are not proving to be particularly effective, and there are quite specific reasons for that. And it's a case of making, of really developing evidence, which is going to put things perhaps going in slightly the right direction. But if I was going to pick for a really big challenge, uh, I would like to see the package waste problem addressed not at the end of the process in recycling packaging, but at the beginning. So in other words, we don't manufacture that waste packaging in the first place. And it's actually quite interesting that if you look at a supermarket, as I do, and I've been doing for the last 40 years, it's perfectly possible to package every single package in a supermarket in about 12 returnable packs. Now, when you start thinking about the implications of that, in other words, what the thing does is the thing might come down from Auckland with milk in it, it gets used in Dunedin, and gets washed out, and it goes back to Auckland full of space. Um, that actually has the chance to reduce the packaging waste stream almost to zero. And actually, in the process, generating a lot of jobs. All right, we're not going to be have as many jobs making you know blow-molded plastic bottles, but I think that's a good thing. But there will be plenty of other jobs. And it's perfectly possible to brand a standard bottle as long as you allow people to put their own design on it. Um, and when you actually start to look at how such a system would work, it saves this country money, and it means that we're not producing uh, vast amounts of waste that ends up in the landfill, and as we know now, increasingly ends up blowing around the planet as microparticles, um, which, rather like a lot of other things I propose, I think it's a long way away, but I think that the world will eventually 
have to go that way to say we are not going to make packages that can't be recycled to the same level that they've got it. So in other words, if you have a reusable package system like this, you have to have a recyclable element to it. So when the thing comes to it, the end of its life, it is then remanufactured back into what it was. The pandemic uh, has the pandemic certainly shown us that we can do stuff if we want to. I've got one last question. Do you have any advice for our listeners? Keep on listening. <laughs> Great advice. Thank you. Moira. Yeah. Rob, I really appreciate you. Um, I go looking for people like you in the world. Uh, who um, who just say, actually, to hell with it. I'm going to say it as it is, and people might not like it, but whatever, it's got to be said. And you did that in such a beautiful way, in, in ways that can be shared, little bite-sized pieces to stimulate conversations, and that's the beginning of change. So I just, I appreciate you so much, Rob. I think you're amazing, and we're really lucky to have you in Aotearoa. Thanks for coming here to make a home. And thanks for sharing with us today. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure. You know, being an academic, I do like the sound of my own voice. So, (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much for your time and thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Monday, Wednesday and Friday afternoons at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is The Clash, Lost in the Supermarket. I'm Samuel Lannis, always bad in Eden, with Moira Karatai in Fakatani, and from Mosgiel, we've been joined by Rob Hamlin. Now that was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.